Welcome to the podcast of data and analytics in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I'm your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. In this episode, we have got Siu Ho. Siu is the Head of Performance and Insight at Australian Post. It is an enterprise of the Australian government business that provides postal services with a view to connecting business with consumer. In this episode, Siu will share with us how she and Australian Post have heavily invested in DBI, data analytics, and RPA so they could always improve the delivery performance of parcel and letters to Australian. This is really important to keep the businesses going at this time during the lockdown. Apart from that, she also shared with us how her academic in engineering helped as the foundation for her to jumpstart her career in data and analytics. And having worked on the roles such as BI and RPA, she will share her experience on how one can transition from one to another. If you have any questions for me or Sil, please feel free to send us a voice message. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you. Hello, Sil. Welcome to the Analytics Show podcast. I'm super excited to have you here and we'll talk a little bit about the data analytics RPA and what's happening in general with the logistics and Australia Post. Great. Great to be here, Jason. Let's start it live. Would you please share with us your personal journey up to here? What motivated you to become an engineer and take up the profession in data science? When I first decided to study engineering, I have no idea where it would take me. I do not know what data science is back then. I don't think it exists. It is a fairly recent term, probably in the last five, eight years, but beyond 10 years, nobody knows what data science is. There is data, there is science, but not together. There is computer science. But if I were to go back 15 years or so ago, I don't even really understand what computer science is, you know? I think I only got my first computer when I was 15. Nothing to do with programming or all this, you know, savvy thing that we currently have. And I remember going to take an Excel course, Excel 3.14, something like that. That was like the earliest, earliest Excel there is. And I, I don't even understand what it was. Anyway, I came from an Asian family. So you're either a doctor, a lawyer or an engineer. And so I am not a doctor, nor am I a lawyer. So I said, I'm going to be an engineer then. So that's where, well, I wouldn't say it's a motivation. It was like the easiest of the three that I've went for. And then I find myself in engineering and I can't really wire a car, you know, or, or fix cars, that stuff, even though I'm a mechanical engineer by training. However, however, the thing that I really enjoy when I was doing engineering is the programming side of things, which, of course, if I knew better, after first year, I would have switched course to computer science. But then, again, Asian background, you just can't switch course like that. You know, you can't just waste a whole year of fees and credits. So that's why I stuck in engineering. <laughs> and then I graduated with honours. <laughs> There is like, there is humor in that, you know, you'd be thinking, if you don't like it, how did you still do it? Yeah. Speak to an Asian, anyone can tell you how you do things that you don't like <laughs> because you're Asian. 
<laughs> it is true there are tiger moms among us. And then I graduated and uh, I took up a graduate role with Blue Scope Steel. And in there, I was hoping that, you know, given that it's a manufacturing company, I would really be exposed to the engineering side of it. But they take a good look at me and they say, you're a customer service. You're too smiley to be engineering. Go to customer service. So then I went into customer service, which is somewhat logistics and supply chain because I realized my role back then was to look at the stock level and to assist my customers. The funny thing about that is regardless of how good my Excel skill was, and I was the one with the best Excel skill among my team because everybody else had a ruler and a pencil and the A3 printout from a printer that is like, I don't know, dictionary thick and they would flip through it with their ruler. And it was back then and I feel old even thinking that was what happened. And that was 2006. Yeah, 2006, you know, in a processing facility, you have the printer. I don't know if people are still printing those reports out on a daily basis. This is like long pages of printer with the uh, with the dotted lines. And my colleague would have a ruler and a pencil and she would go through the stocks where she could take stock from, et cetera. And I would have my Excel spreadsheet and I would say, you could filter it here. And she would be like, nah, I'm just going to go through it like that. But the thing that, gets to me was she always gets the stock before I get the stock (laughs) and then I realized it's not just about the tool set it's about the knowledge that you have because I could be really good like a real I couldn't know where to look but she would know where to look so by the time I get there it's already too late you know stock's gone so I really just have to get on a good side and ask her to tell me where it is and that was my first role and after that role I went into a few other roles which are all data related. Now, I say I really did try to go into engineering. Like when I was in Lycar, it is an engineering company, but I wasn't really an engineer doing an engineer role. I was more of of like a support analyst. And the next thing I know, I'm just looking at data and data after data and databases. And then I did a course on SQL myself and I thought, okay, that's what database is. I had a friend teach me crystal report and And then I realized I really liked it. And the next thing I know, you know, it was report analyst and it was system developer. It was was just dealing with data. And I guess I couldn't have tell where I was going to go, but it just got me there because if you follow your passion, it leads you to the right area. And and that's why I'm here (laughs) still doing data. But along the way, you would say I have left my engineering degree behind and pretty much say goodbye to it, though it provided me with the basics of understanding programming logics, you know, algorithm and all that. And, and that, that is all helpful, despite that I can't wire a car, <laughs> that, that is still helpful. And along the way to transition into data, people would say, oh, so you were not really in data. You're not trained as data. You don't have a computer science background or information system background, but you're in there anyway. And that could only happen if people are willing to teach you. And along the way, I have met many, many good mentors and each of them has imparted a lot of knowledge to me uh, that shaped how I am today. And I still remember the first time I was exposed to SQL, my then mentor said, data type and dates. 
that's your two biggest concern, really. And you really need a calendar table. And I'm like, what? And to this day, these are really just still the things that are important. You get your data type right, you get your calendar table, you work well with dates, you are good. And there may be other things that makes databases complex, but if you can't get these ones right, you can't get the other right anyway. And that's something that's just still sit with me. And then there are other ones that, you know, make sure you have good documentation skill. You know, you don't want to be the one reading your own code <laughs> without being able to decipher it. And I thought, you know, good point. And, and along the way, I, I really say the people that you meet will teach you stuff. And it may not be in the form where, you know, they're really giving it to you. And it could be really hard getting those information, those those lessons. But along the way, you learn. Each things that you do, you learn. And there are people that you may not get along with. Even then, they teach you stuff. So I, I really have all these people that I made throughout my career to thank to because everything I learned about databases and data models, data governance and so forth, they helped me along the way. So I guess where I am now, what motivates here, one would be my passion for data and data-related things. I am the kind of person where you say, will she be happy if you give her an Excel spreadsheet? Yes, she'll be very happy to look at an Excel spreadsheet. And for hours and hours, she'll just stare at it, slice it, pivot it, pivot it again. And I am that kind of person. So I guess with that, it makes work quite fun because I am actually doing what I like. So I guess for anyone that is looking into working in the data field, you just have to ask yourself, are you that a data person? If you are, then everything you don't know and when you try to find out about things, it is going to be fun. It's going to be playing with data. I wanted to delve in a little bit about the mentors that uh, you have got over the years that you were saying that, you know, they could come in all different forms whether directly or indirectly or not, who was the most supportive for you if you have to name one for over the years? Ooh, supportive. In what sense would you say supportive? Supportive in a way that perhaps is shaping the way that how you see the world in, of the business and how data and analytics are being used as an enabler to help running the businesses? Oh, this is really hard. I don't think I have that one person that filled that role, but it is the collective tips that everyone has given me that has kind of led me into appreciation of that. And the person, I mean, the group of people that truly inspire me to understand the data the way I do are actually not data people. They are business users. They are people that know the business but doesn't know so much in terms of how to write an SQL, that sort of thing. But they do know the business. I think they are the people that really inspire me how I should look at the data and how I should use data to enable some of the insights. Yeah, that seems to be help shaping the way that how now you're using the data and analytics as an enabler to run the business, isn't it? Now, share with us about your time at Australia Post now. What position of head of performance and insight looks like? What are the major focus for you at the moment? I, I am still quite new, if I could say. 
I've only been in this role for three, four months, something like that. Very much defining my role, very much learning what this role means. But I do take the first three months to learn about our performance measurement tool, which we call DIFOD, which is uh, delivery in full on time. And it's, it's a measure that is popular amongst logistics industry, supply chain industry. And I am trying to understand it. and I'm trying to understand how to interpret what my predecessor has set up. I'm trying to understand how it impacts operations, how it impacts business, how it impacts how our dealing with our customer is. So I'm very much at the discovery stage at the moment. There are, I mean, if you go down to the day-to-day tasks, there are a lot of inquiries that come through to myself, my team, or to my manager even, you know, particularly around how are we performing? The question is always, how are we performing? Why are we performing the way we are performing? How can we be better at it? And I think as an overarching purpose of my role would be answering those three questions very well. So I really need to work harder in discovering and understanding how everything is hanging together and so that I could then answer those questions. Right. So when you say, how are we, the question sort of like, uh, how are we performing? Was it more in the way of like, how are we performing as a business or how well are we delivering the post, the letter, the items, the consumer. Yes, I understand your question. It would be how well are we at delivering a parcel or a letter? Yes. So, for example, you as a consumer, you've ordered something online, you are receiving your product on a day that you expect to receive it and you're happy that you receive it. The condition of the product is great and that is success. And then, of course, on the flip side, you have failures where you ordered something online, you waited for a week, it's supposed to be a next day delivery, it still hasn't arrived, you check with the merchant and the merchant say, we've sent it out, you know, you look at the trackings, you're like, I don't know where it is, it's not anywhere. So that is essentially a fail. So performance is really how successful you are in terms of that metric in delivering a parcel to an end user or delivering a letter to an end user, to a customer. Right. And if we dwell into that a little bit further, because to some extent, the way I see Australia Post or maybe any other delivery company is that they are they play the, the middleman role. As a consumer, though, I would then look at when I buy something from online company or whatever, as much as it gets delivered by Australia Post or any other logistic company, I often would just go back and say, hey, why my item is still not delivered? So my question for you then is how do you balance the question and the burden that the, the merchant would come to you and say, hey, my customer are chasing the product, where the things are at? How do you answer those questions in making sure keeping the them happy because at the end of the day, they are probably more of your customer rather than the consumer side. Would that be the one? Yes. So definitely the merchant is our customers, big customers, because obviously we have the building and all that, as opposed to someone who just walks into the post office and, you know, post a parcel. I guess if the end customer is not happy, 
the merchants hear about it. When the merchants hear about it, we hear about it. They will come to me and ask the three questions. <laughs> what is the performance? Why is the performance that performance? And how can we improve that performance? doesn't matter where it comes from. It's always that three question. What is the performance? Why is it that way? And how can we fix it? So then, of course, you go and look at your data and there will be some data model underlying it to apportion or try to figure out where it could have gone wrong in the whole supply chain process. And then you work backwards and say, it could be because, you know, we're having like COVID-19 is a big one. There are certain disruptions, there are restrictions, you know, there, we are challenged. Sometimes we are under-resourced. There are all sorts of reasons for the delay. And I think so long as you could justify something and it's not just because we are not doing our job well, I think that it's all right to go back to the merchant and say, these are the reasons why we have failed. But a lot of the time, you also check that the merchant are doing the right thing in terms of, you know, packaging the product correctly, lodging it correctly. You know, there's uh, no non-compliance there. There is obviously a lot of process into ensuring, you know, every bit of the process is done correctly. But human being human, we are going to deviate from the process. Sometimes you may not have wrapped the parcels the way it's meant to be wrapped. And then the next thing you know, you know, when you're rewrapping it, maybe it's hide the barcode or something. There, there could be anything. The amount of variations to what has happened to a particular product is just a lot. It could be anything depending on which product it is. But of course, you know, the good thing is the performance are generally quite good. So we are not saying we are failing half of what we send. We are trying to get to the, it's like an Asian mom saying, you know, you're getting 99% of your, on your maths exam. What is that 1%? So I think uh, similarly, it would be like, you're getting 80%. What happened to 20%? Or you're getting 85%. What happened to the 15 Or you're getting 96 What happened to the four? So there's always that, you know, doesn't matter what the performance is. You're always trying to get better at it because it is a competitive environment. You could compare Australia Post with Toll, with Arc Express, with a lot of the pack and sand, for example. And everybody is offering a better die for a better measure. And sometimes they could even offer it at a cheaper rate. So as a merchant, you'd be like, oh, do I go somewhere else or do I stay with Australia Post? And so you want to be best at delivering so that you remain the preference logistic company that your merchant will go with. Sure. Now, on the industry of the transportation and also logistic, from that angle and the perspective, what are the operations that are getting transformed by data and analytics and how you guys are using data and analytics to be the best of the delivering and to be the chosen one? Well, I am not particularly involved in this, but I would see I am as an end user, a consumer. If I see myself as a consumer and not just a worker of Australia Post, I would then say, now that when I get my parcel, I actually get notified. I remember seeing that SMS that says, your parcel's arriving today. Do you want to leave it in the, in the front door? And I thought, that is clever. That is like, that is smart, you know. And I have ordered from, I don't know which other companies, company X, let's just call it, right? And they would not re-deliver. They asked me to go and collect at the depot. And the depot is far away from me. And I thought, that is just... I don't want to buy from the merchant again because of that. And it makes a difference. So I think 
where data is concerned, where we can capture the data and where we can provide a notification back to the user, that is a form of service. You know, you could see, you could track. Imagine if you are tracking something very important and it's not just, you know, something you buy overseas and you say, oh, it's okay, it can come in a month time, I don't care. But say it's something you need it for the weekend, you know, a wedding ring, for example, a wedding dress, you know, those kind of things. And you get anxious, you'll be staring at your phone. Oh, when's the next step of scan coming in? Oh, it's got onto the, the van, you know, people track it. And these are only available because of the data analytics that sits underneath it. And a big team works toward getting that out. I'm not part of that team, but I was part of the consumer of that. And I thought that is a really great milestone. And I think that is probably really a good use cases of the data in complementing the business operation. Now, having spoken to you multiple times, I know that you are championing to say, understanding the business first before the data and data should always be just an enabler. I am curious to know in your day-to-day operation, in your work, how do you work with the IT department in getting that whole idea across to the team that why it is so important to understand the business first rather than just go on and choose whatever IT or whatever analytic tools and then coming back and say the business should fit whatever tools that we have just chosen. Because ultimately the business pays for the solution, yeah? So whether you are IT or you're the project team, you know, it doesn't really matter what you think. The business is paying for the solution. You can go and build a whole new different things. You come back with the different thing. And if it's not something that they want, they're just going to drop it like a hot potato. So it is definitely important to understand your business requirements. That is number one. Now, business requirements come in two ways. You have business users who know a little bit about, you know, the designing, the architecture, the things, the underlying things that builds your data analytics. And that's good because they will then form their business requirements such a way that it is feasible, it's doable in building that solution. But then you also have business users who have a lot of wish lists that you know you won't be able to adhere to and you need to vet it out in the first place. So in other words, when they come to you, they say, i like to have this thing built. You then have to ask them, do you actually have the data to enable such a thing? Is it a matter of building or is it a matter of investing a lot more before you can build. So definitely you have to understand the business requirement and definitely you have to tell the business upfront what they can get and what they can't get because it is all very well. Everybody's excited, you know, the business paying for it and you've gone away like, oh, we can totally build this thing. Oh, look what other things that we can build. We can bring in this tool, that tool and all these other things. And then the next thing you know, the business like, it's too hard. I can't use it. And you may not capture that in the business requirement, usability. You know, you think, oh, but it's so easy. You just click and drop it. Like, yeah, we've tried it. It's not what we actually want it to do. And this is not news. It happens all the time, you know. We go away thinking that, you know, we're going to build all these things, all these really cool things. And then the business say, no, it's just too complicated. I'm just going to revert back to my Excel spreadsheet. 
and it happens, right? So therefore, I say it's it's key. It's key not only to understand what they are trying to do when they ask for a business intelligence solution. What questions are they trying to answer? What are their skill sets? You know, who are the people that are going to use it? Are they someone that is comfortable learning new tools? Like how big is that transformation from, you know, opening an Excel spreadsheet and doing a few formulas to your BI tools and your, how good are they at reading charts? You know, chart reading is in fact a skill. <laughs> Sometimes I look at a lot of this beautiful tableau report. I'm like, what is it trying to say again? What does this bubble mean? And surely I'm not the only person that look at a tableau report with squinting eyes and say, there's too many things in there and I don't know what it's trying to tell me. It looks like it's trying to tell me a lot of things. That color says some things, that size says something. It's too much for me. And then I need someone to take me through it. And I said, oh, okay, now I understand. Just look for the big bubbles, <laughs> you know? Um, so something like that. And that's why I said it, it's critical to understand who your client are, what their skill sets are, what they're trying to achieve, and then go away and think whether where you want to go is going to give them what they need or are you more interested in playing with a new tool? Because a lot of time you see people say, and these are like buzzword. If that buzzword for the year, the buzz tool is Alteryx. Alteryx will solve everything. If that year the buzzword is Tableau, Tableau will solve everything. That year is Cognos. Cognos will solve everything. Teradata will solve everything. And it's like, no, none of these tools are going to solve everything. You really have to go back to your client. And then you say, yes, maybe that tool can do ABCD, but can't do EFG. Are you willing to go EFG? No, 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 EFG is really important. Okay, but not that tool. You really need to understand the business requirement, then vet out the correct tool, not the latest tool. Couldn't agree more. Now, you have worked a lot on the BI space and you also later on work in the RPA space. In your view, how transferable are those BI skills into the RPA? I think they are different tool stacks, but they complement each other. Where business intelligence is about trying to understand what your data is saying, trying to use your data to make the right decisions trying to see patterns in your data to identify issues. That's business intelligence. RPA is about understanding the process that you need to do to enable business intelligence. For example, cleaning up your data is not BI, but could be an RPA application. You know, The process of joining all those different pieces of, of collating information or joining different systems, integration, it's an RPA sort of application if you don't have an integrated tool, but it's not necessarily BI. However, doing that integration well would enable your BI to be done better. So it is a distant cousin of BI, but it's not exactly that directly related to BI. In other words, you can build BI solution without RPA altogether. What would be your advice for those who want to move from BI into RPA though? I would say if you are a data person, you may not like RPA because it's taking you away from data. It is talking about click here, click there, identify that there is an icon here, click there. And you are specifying that each step it takes to complete a procedure. 
Whereas data is completely different. You're looking at tables, you're looking at patterns, you're looking at, you are mining for information. Whereas the other one, you already need to know what you're trying to do. And then you're just specifying, you're just, think of it as writing IKEA instructions. That's RPA. <laughs> Whereas data analytics has nothing to do with writing an instruction. So I'd say if they really think they want to go into RPA, it's worthwhile giving it a go because it is quite easy if you already have some programming understanding, you know, things like error handling, programming practices, those sort of things, basic programming languages, because RPA to these days come with a really friendly graphic user interface. It's a lot of drag and drop. You can start off with an RPA solution with a lot of drag and drop done, and then you fine-tune it with going under the hood and writing certain um, codes to, to make it more perfect. But a lot of them offer free demo. So just jump on and have a look, click around and say, oh, let's try to uh, do a few things to my web browser. You know, you could you could do something like that. And and I think the key here is you, you don't know until you try it. And there's only one way to find out. You just have to try it. Um, but there are people whose uh, interest, who's in the Microsoft suite and it has an app called Flow. And if you're already paying for the whole Microsoft 365, you might as well use the Flow to, to gauge whether that's something you like to do. It's very similar to RPA. Pretty much you're saying, if an email comes in, do I then send this email to a SharePoint site? Do I then do a few things? And that's pretty much your RPA. But if people are just trying to see, oh, is this something for me? You know, because it feels like it is a growing industry. I might want to go in there. And I guess my advice is to give it a go and try it. I have tried it and it's not for me. <laughs> I'm still the Excel sheet person. <laughs> yeah. So while this is a growing industry, it seems to have a concern. Some people seem to have concern about this industry that may take away their job and make their role redundant. Now, my question for you is having have done that works in the past and in your role now, how would you communicate to the team members who may be impacted, who may share that sort of concern that RPA is not necessarily here to take their job away, but is actually helping them to save the time so that they could focus on the things that would adding more value. I think if you look at job disappearing, it's not necessarily just RPA, it is technology the way technology has enabled a lot of more things that, I mean, computer are getting smarter. You don't really use a calculator anymore. There, there is a lot of things that technology has make it so easy that certain roles associated with that manual side of things disappear. And it has nothing to do with RPA. But if you look at RPA alone, yes, it does take away things that some people do. However, if you ask yourself this question, if you're doing the same job year after year after year and your job does not change, you do not undergo training. So in other words, you are stagnant. The world is changing. Therefore, you are going to be left behind. Yeah. So whether it's RPA, it's technology, is the promotion of self-serve, anything could threaten a job. 
And the key to overcome that is to evolve with technology, evolve with changes that's happening in the workplace. For example, you say, I'm so worried that my job is going to be automated. Then in that case, why don't you change and grow and learn to be the one that automate your own job? So instead of my job, instead of doing that job, I now am an RPA that code that. Now, it's not easy. Nobody says it's easy. Learning is difficult. It's it's sometimes hard. But of all your options, it is providing you an options to get away from job redundancy. In other words, you need to evolve. We all need to evolve. Our jobs are evolving, so why not us? Because if you think about it, right, when a job disappears, another job pops up with a whole new different criteria. And you're like, hang on, I could do half of that. I just need to upskill the other half. So maybe that job is my new job. So I should really move into that job. But what most of the time we don't do proactively is we wait for people to train us. We wait for the employer to train us. We wait for, we wait for things to happen when we could enable it ourselves. I mean, we have Google, we have YouTube, you know, whatever you want to learn, you just type it in, tells you everything. So there is no excuse as to why we don't learn and why we don't evolve. So if you're thinking my role will probably be redundant in two years, these next two years, you better grow into the role that's going to pop up because of this role being made redundant, isn't it? Yes, I agree. And I think the, the other picture that people may be missing is that while some of the roles are disappearing because of the technology that we have got in place now, at the same time, a lot of these technology are also creating different type of the jobs and different roles that could be perhaps more fulfilling rather than doing all those repetitive jobs as well. Yes, but having said that, right, it's almost not right to say that everybody wants to grow because there are going to some, be some of us that says, I really quite like what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. I don't want to learn new things. I don't want the uncertainty. I don't want the butterflies. You know, it is really hard. I might fail in my next, the anxiety. I can't deal with it. So there are people that do not want to step out of those comfort zones. Now, what do we do with them? If you automate their role, they will then say, oh my God, my roles disappeared, but I'm not willing to go anywhere. So it's about how much time we take to help these people get out of their comfort zone. And a lot of time, we don't value putting in the effort to help someone out of their comfort zone. We just say, you drive your own career. If you're not going to do anything about it, you're going to be left behind. But I think... We should care about each other a, a little bit more and help and help others move out of the comfort zone. And it is hard, but, you know, you just have to try. You just have to try slowly. It's like me trying to ask my colleague to give up that ruler and the pencil and just use the Excel. And I'm trying. I say, you should use it. You should use it. You see, you just need to filter it, right? And she wouldn't use it the first time. She wouldn't use it the second time or the third time or the fourth time, you know. But by the 10th time, right, she would ask me, what did you say about the filter again? Because the thing is, they know it is fast. They know it is good. But it is going to take them much longer to get to that comfort place to use it. And a lot of time, people just don't have the patience to bring people onto that 
journey. They just expect people to just do it. And I think, you know, if you're a leader, if you're a manager, you really, really want to keep some time for training your staff, you know, help them, nurture them into something new, something different, because everybody needs help. You know, they need help to evolve. You know, you can't all be the self, self-help self guru here, you know. Not everybody's like that. Everybody could use some help. And I certainly, even though I am quite self-help person, I would go and learn things myself. I did appreciate all the other things that people have taught me that I wouldn't have known. They helped me make it easier for me to transition. So, yeah, definitely. That being said, what are your approach? for upskilling and providing training to your team and team members then? Oh, I think first is to understand where their comfort level is. You have to have that gate and patience. You have to gate where their comfort levels are. And then you, you have to understand and try to correlate and, and translate what they're currently doing to what you want them to learn. You have to kind of say, for example, if I have a staff member who knows how to use pivot table and, you know, Excel formulas and all that. And then I say, oh, can you write SQL? She's like, what? I know how to use an Excel spreadsheet. I don't know how to use an SQL. And then you have to break it down. You're like, it is not foreign because it is foreign, you know. Can you imagine someone who doesn't know SQL or database or anything and they are just like an Excel user? trying to get them to write SQL would be a nightmare, right? But then you have to break it down to building blocks. You have to say, it's almost the same. The select statement, select the field, which is like the column name in your Excel spreadsheet. And then the from is like where your spreadsheet is, which you already know because you open it. So in this case, you have to try to translate it to them. And then you say, the where statement really is like the filter you click on Excel. And when you can associate new technology that they are trying to learn to the old one that they already know, it is not no longer as scary. The terms are like, you know, over time you learn the terms and the terminology, but the concept is the same. And for me, when I go around learning new tools, I fundamentally think the concepts are the same. Nobody's inventing wheels here, but everybody is putting in a a, a better skin better features you know you cannot drag and drop and all those other things but fundamentally they are the same thing it doesn't matter what data analytics tool they are they are pivot tables <laughs> underlying your aggregating data you know your filtering your highlighting they are all the same thing but the terms has just made them so unaccessible when you first look at them like, I don't know what that is <laughs> right when you actually know what it is you just didn't recognize it because they've just been dressed up you know hyped up and buzzword up and it seems scary but underlying it's just one zero one zero one zero one zero isn't it right so let's not get there because one zero one zero is quite scary for some as well <laughs> I'm curious to know, like, in answering the question that you often receive, what is the performance of the delivery? How much are you guys would be trying to implement RPA into improving this sort of metrics then? In my immediate realm, I am not aware of any RPA solution to get better data. And I, and I don't 
think it is one of those. If you see how we capture data, it's via scanning, you know, barcode scanning, right? You lodge a parcel at the post office, the lady accepts it, they scan your barcode. They give you a barcode in return and say, this is your tracking number, yeah? So if you think about it, the more time you scan in the more areas that you're scanning, the more information you're going to capture. RPA has nothing to do with it. Now, unless you have a scanner, designated scanner, where all your parcels go through that, you know, as soon as your parcel go past something, it scans it, or your parcel get loaded onto a truck, it scans it, you know, then you, you've automated that. But until such time when you install scanner everywhere, just like everybody's installing camera everywhere, you still have to use a scanner to scan it. And that's not easily automatable because there is a cost associated to it with all automation. It's about what's the return in value of your investment? You know, is it cheaper for me to have someone scan it or is it cheaper for me to have a machine scan it? It all boils down to the cost. I agree. <laughs> I think I will come to my final two questions that I always ask my guests. What is your most important first principle? Question the data all the time. If it doesn't look right, it probably is not right. <laughs> like question it when you are seeing 99%. <laughs> You know, we are not all geniuses that score 100%. And definitely for a whole industry, it's not likely. So you really have to question your data all the time. And when it looks too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. And what is one book that you have read and thought it would have been better for your younger self to have? Actually, my younger self do not like reading. <laughs> do not like reading. My younger self like television. My older self likes television even more. But when I do read, I think it would be at that point in time relevant to me. So... Even if I did read something, I never thought, oh, I should have read it years ago. It's not quite like that because years ago, my needs are different and I would read something totally different. So I guess it's relative to the time. And yeah, I would recommend a show that I would watch when I was younger, maybe. <laughs> not so much a book, yes. And what so would this be? <laughs> that you would... Tough, tough, tough. Well, having said that, right, I also don't watch that much, even though I know I like watching, right? I, I can't say there is a particular one. What I did think I would have done differently is when I was young, my mom sent me to piano lessons and I hated it. You know, like I cannot be a more typical Asian kid, right? Have to do piano lessons and all that. Right? I, I hated it and I cried every session. But then when I grew up, I was really appreciative that, you know, I actually love playing the piano. So that's what I tell my child. I say, you need to do it because you are going to like it. And I would then go back to my younger self and say, why didn't I just tell the teacher I hate classical music? I love the piano, but I really hate all this, I don't know, adagio, allegro, and all these other things that, you know, it's not, not relevant. Maybe you should have just teach me how to play K-pop or, you know, those kind of things. And um, that would have been what I would have told my younger self to, you know, be a bit braver and tell the adult what I truly felt and not what I thought would please them. I mean, to this day, sometimes I still feel like I'm pleasing people instead of telling them that my true honest feeling. Sometimes it could be a career killer. So 
really can't be telling your true feelings. <laughs> so there. But I think courage is one of those qualities that I thought my younger self should have more. And even my older self, I still think I should have more. I don't think I'm very courageous. Thank you so much, Sue, for sharing with us about the whole BI and uh, the data analytics, the use of the RPA in the logistics and uh, supply chains industry. I think that gives us some really good insight about how these things are being used. And especially at this climate where COVID-19 is impacting everything. Thank you guys for keeping the operation going and send us everything that we buy online while being locked down. Well, I'm glad that people are buying. It keeps me in a job. <laughs> so continue your online purchases. You know, we will try to deliver as much as soon as possible. I mean, it is really complex and not easy. And I mean, I don't know how complex logistics are until I'm in it. It is very complex. So when a parcel didn't turn up on time, understand that we do all we can to get it there. But there are things that it's just out of our control and we couldn't get it there. And um, we are terribly sorry about it, but we do try to improve. I mean, a lot, a lot. Every one of us in the operations world are trying to make it better. So I, I really see the dedication when I joined this team. You know, every one of us just wants the performance to improve. Absolutely. The three questions keep getting asked. <laughs> yes <laughs> absolutely and uh, thank you so much for keeping the performance up and running you're welcome Jason and thank you for taking the time to chat with me thank you